You're listening to a sermon from Grace Church, located in Frisco, Texas. Get to know Grace Church better by visiting our website at www.gracechurchfrisco.org. Today, we have a guest speaker. 2020, and in 2020, we saw over 1.3 million jobs lost. We had depression. The numbers have skyrocketed like never before. People re- reporting being depressed. Thoughts and even action towards suicide have increased. Um, families have experienced separation. Many family members have been isolated for almost an entire year from their families. Some have lost loved ones, and here we are now in this kind of, for many people, depressing time of year right after Christmas, because especially this year, many people looked forward and put their hope into Christmas to kind of at least distract them from the situation that we have because of COVID. And now after Christmas, many people's hopes that they had in Christmas, delivering them from those, those difficult times uh, have not been realized. And we're not yet to the new year. Remember, now the new hope is 2021, but we're not there yet. So we're in this weird in-between. And so why start off with this depressing introduction? Because I believe what we're going to look at today, although it may be a familiar passage, although this may be a familiar truth, what we're going to look at today, I think, gives us answers to how we can have hope and how we can rejoice even in difficult times. So if you would, turn in your Bibles to Philippians chapter 3. I think the verse is going to be on the screen if you're at home with us. But Philippians chapter 3, we're going to be reading from verse 1, and we'll be reading verses 1 through 11. This is God's holy word that we're going to read. This is going to be the best part of the message, I promise you, so pay attention here as we're reading. Finally, my brothers... Rejoice in the Lord. To write the same things to you is no trouble to me and is safe for you. Look out for the dogs. Look out for the evildoers. Look out for those who mutilate the flesh. For we are the circumcision who worship by the Spirit of God and glory in Christ Jesus and put no confidence in the flesh. Though I myself have reason for confidence in the flesh also. If anyone else thinks he has reason for confidence in the flesh, I have more. Circumcised on the eighth day of the people of Israel, of the tribe of Benjamin, a Hebrew of Hebrews. As to the law, a Pharisee. As to zeal, a persecutor of the church. As to righteousness under the law, blameless. But whatever gain I had, I counted as loss for the sake of Christ. Indeed, I count everything as lost because of the surpassing worth of knowing Christ Jesus my Lord. For his sake, I have suffered the loss of all things and count them as rubbish in order that I may gain Christ and be found in him, not having a righteousness of my own that comes from the law, but that which comes through faith in Christ, the righteousness from God that depends on faith, that I may know him, And the power of his resurrection and may share in his sufferings, becoming like him in his death, that by any means possible I may gain the resurrection from the dead. Let's pray. Father, as we look at your word this morning, um, 
I pray that you would fill me with the Holy Spirit. Holy Spirit, that you would fill me, that you would speak through me, that the words that I speak would not be my own, but would be your words. And that in power, as you promised, you would accomplish your will through your word as it is preached this morning, that you would change us and shape us and mold us according to your word, that even familiar things that may be familiar to some of us, God, would, would have a new, fresh truth that we would see the truth of your word this morning and we would be changed for your glory, we pray. In Jesus' name, amen. Amen. Well, to help us organize this, I, I kind of, I think I want to look at the context first. And context is super important. Anytime you're reading a passage, especially when you just jump into the middle of a book, you want to know the context. So if you're taking notes, here's kind of how, in my mind, I've organized it. So we have the context. Text. The context is going to cover the conflict and a contrast. Then we're going to look at confidence, a conjunction, and then confirmation. Not confirmation, but conformation, and I'll explain that later. So context, conflict, conflict, contrast, confidence, conjunction, and confirmation. And yes, they all do start with that con. So first of all, context. So what's going on? Well, Paul is the author, right? Paul is writing to the Philippians. Now the church in Philippi, that's what the letter in Philippians, it's a, to the church in Philippi. The church in Philippi was likely the first church in Europe that Paul started. And you can read it in Acts 16, his second missionary journey. Um, Paul and Silas and Luke and, and others possibly, but those three we know, go and they start this church in Philippi. And then Paul goes back in his third missionary journey in Acts 20 and he visits the church. And he encourages the church and most likely many scholars believe Luke actually stayed behind and was there helping with, with the church in Philippi. And so uh, the church in Philippi knew Paul, they loved Paul, um, and now Paul is writing this letter 10 years since he planted the church because Paul is now in prison. Paul is in prison in Rome and the, the church in Philippi is struggling because this, this guy, their, their church founder is now in prison and they're worried about Paul and they're worried about how is Paul doing and so they send uh, probably their pastoral intern, Epaphroditus, right? And he goes, and he goes to Paul, and he almost dies. He gets so sick. They don't say what, what he had. Maybe it was COVID, probably not. But he almost dies. And so Paul says, all right, I have to write a letter to encourage the church, and actually, to really encourage them, I'm going to send Epaphroditus back, who didn't die, but God healed. I'm going to send Epaphroditus back with this letter to the church in Philippi to encourage them, to tell them I'm okay, and to encourage them that Epaphroditus is okay. Because uh, Paul says it in his letter, he doesn't want to add, he, he's so concerned, he doesn't want to add burden upon burden because, you know, how, how terrible for this church that's worried about Paul to send their pastoral intern who then ends up dying on the way, right? Well, thankfully he doesn't, and so Paul sends this letter with Epaphroditus to encourage the church. So that's the context of this letter. But then to continue the context of our passage today in chapter 3, Paul references this conflict that's going on. And this conflict that's going on is there's this group called the Judaizers. And one commentary says these were Jewish Christians who sought to persuade Paul's Gentile converts 
to add the yoke of the law to their faith in Christ. And see, when we're reading the ESV, you see it says, look out for, verse 2, look out for the dogs, look out for the evildoers, look out for those who mutilate the flesh. The flesh. Those words can be confusing to us because look out doesn't always necessarily have a negative context right in our minds when we hear it. Uh, you could be on the lookout for this, that, the other thing. But if you look in other translations, they'll use words like watch out for or beware of. And that's what Paul has in mind. He's not saying be on the lookout for. He's saying watch out, be careful, be careful of. And he gives three names and they're very intentional names. The first one he says, look out for the dogs. The dogs. Now we can use dogs in a positive way today, right? Like my, my dogs, my, my brothers. Uh, sometimes it can be negative, you dog. But back then it was a Jewish idiom that was designed to be negative. And they used it mostly to talk about Gentiles. And to understand it, you know, we, we think about dogs and they're not necessarily negative. Uh, many of us have dog pets. But dogs then were, were roaming the streets. Right? They, would, they were eating garbage. They were not pets. It reminds me of when my family and I went to Rancho 3M in Mexico. And there's these dogs running around the ranch. And I remember my boys are hanging on the dogs and they're petting the dogs and they're feeding the dogs. And I remember asking Dean, who runs Rancho 3M, Dean, when did you get these dogs? He said, oh, they just showed up one day. They're just stray dogs. And my kids, I mean, my kids are hanging on these stray dogs and worried that they're going to get fleas. Uh, and that's, that's what Paul has in mind. When he says dogs, that's what the Jewish people used for dogs. They were closer to street rats than your fluffy dog who's in your family photos and who gets a you know, perm once a month from the mobile dog service. And so Paul uses it, and it's interesting, he uses it for these Judaizers who would have used this phrase to talk about Gentiles, and he says, actually, you want to know who the dogs are? They're these people that are trying to add to the righteousness that Christians have in Christ. It's such a Christ-like statement. Right? Jesus would say this over and over, people that thought they were right before God because of their actions. He would say, actually, you're you're the people that need to be most concerned. Well, second, what does he say? Look out for the dogs. Look out for the evildoers. And again, Paul uses specific language because here the Judaizers are thinking that they're calling these Gentile converts to good works. They think the ultimate good work that they're calling them to is circumcision. But Paul says, in fact, they are actually promoting evil. They're evildoers. Because they're propagating and promoting a confidence in the flesh which undermines the truth of the gospel. And the third term that Paul uses to describe this conflict that's going on with the Judaizers is he uses a term, a very strong language. He says, the mutilators. So here the Judaizers are promoting, excuse me guys, uh, they're, they're promoting the removal of foreskin to be right before God. But what Paul says is they're actually promoting a mutilating of the flesh and actually a separation from God. And we're guilty of this today, aren't we? Maybe not circumcision. But many of us, while we claim it's faith that makes faith in Christ that makes us right before God, it's faith in Christ that saves. Many of us look down on Christians that aren't like us. 
We often seek to add burdens to people that Christ never intends for them to carry. I remember as a young Christian how excited I was when someone was saved from the doctrine, the Arminian doctrine, and believed in Calvinistic doctrine. And some of us can do the same thing today. We can lift our eschatology up to an issue of soteriology when in fact it is not. So if you're like I was, I believe Paul would refer to us the same way he does to the Judaizers here. So that's the conflict. So again, context, conflict. Now what does Paul say? In his very witty Paul way, he he gives a contrast to each one of these three names that he gives the Judaizers. The first one is, verse 3, he says, For we are the circumcision. So you, Judaizers, think that you're promoting this circumcision. Actually, you're mutilating the flesh. And Paul says, actually, the real circumcision here, the real circumcised people are these Christians in the church in Philippi. And what is Paul, what is Paul doing? Well, he's echoing here. Jeremiah 9, 25 and 26 says, Behold, the days are coming, declares the Lord, when I will punish all those who are circumcised merely in the flesh. Egypt, Judah, Edom, the sons of Ammon, Moab, and all who dwell in the desert will cut the corners of their hair, for all these nations are uncircumcised, and all the house of Israel are uncircumcised in heart. Or Deuteronomy 10.16, Circumcise therefore the foreskin of your heart, and be no longer stubborn. See, Paul, Paul tells the Judaizers, guess what, guys? This, this is a very biblical idea that's been in the Bible since the beginning is that circumcision actually is not a physical thing. It's not just merely a physical thing. It's circumcision of the heart. And Paul says these Christians are more circumcised than you Judaizers. So he says the circumcision. Well, what other contrast does he have? Well, he says, verse 3 again, For we are the circumcision who worship by the Spirit of God. And again, Paul contrasts the evildoers with those who worship by the Spirit of God. And that word worship, we use a lot today, but it means to, to serve the Lord. It's, you could ask Bob Hughes if he was here. It's an all-of-life worship. It's not just singing. It's not just playing music. But it's all-of-life to serve. And so Paul says, we actually are the ones who worship by the Spirit the Gentile Christians are the ones who are worshiping by the Spirit of God. Not only are they the ones worshiping God, but it is actually God himself through the Spirit who is informing and empowering that worship. That's just what Jesus says in John 4, 23, 24. But the hour is coming and is now here when the true worshipers will worship the Father in spirit and in truth. And the Father is seeking such people to worship him. God is spirit, and those who worship him must worship in spirit and truth. And Paul says, we're the circumcision. We're those who worship by the spirit of God. And third contrast, he says, we are those who glory in Christ Jesus and put no confidence in the flesh. And I think this is supposed to be the nail in the coffin. This is supposed to be the, the final argument that Paul uses. We're, we're the ones who glory in Christ Jesus and put no confidence in the flesh. That word glory, that word means to boast. 
And Paul uses that over and over in his writing. We've heard it, have we not, in Ephesians 2, 8 and 9, when Paul, talking about our salvation, says, it's not by works so that no one may boast. Here's what God says in Jeremiah 9, 23 and 24. Thus says the Lord, let not the wise man boast in his wisdom. Let not the mighty man boast in his might. Let not the rich man boast in his riches, but let him who boasts boast in this, that he understands and knows me, that I am the Lord who practices steadfast love, justice, and righteousness in the earth, for in these things I delight, declares the Lord. I think that's exactly what Paul has in mind here. He says, true Christians boast in Christ Jesus and put no confidence in the flesh. They put no hope in the flesh. And that word flesh is not just physical. It's, it's meant to refer to a, a, primarily here a practicing of the law. And Paul says Christians are to glory in and to boast in Christ and not put our confidence in keeping the law. How we need to hear this today. Our glory is to be in Christ, not in our traditions, not in who we are or what we do. Our confidence cannot be in the flesh. Now, many scholars believe this was Paul's initial intended end to this argument. But in such a Pauline way, they believe he gets so excited about this and and has in mind this confidence in the flesh. And he, he wants to really emphasize the truth of what he's saying, and really put weight to it. And so instead of ending it there, he keeps going and he says, you know what, actually, hold on. Speaking of confidence in the flesh, let me, let me tell you how much confidence in the flesh I could have if I wanted to. And so that takes us to our, our next point, confidence. And this is where the Judaizers' confidence was. It was in the flesh. So Paul hits some Right where they are. He argues that putting confidence in the flesh is futile. But he doesn't want the church and he doesn't want the Judaizers to think it's because he doesn't have reason to boast in the flesh. Right? Thinking about young people for a second. Sometimes we can think that about our parents, right? We can think, my my mom or dad have this rule because they just don't understand. They don't know what it's like. They've never been a kid before. This world didn't start existing until I was born. Well, I want to argue to you young people at home and young people here. Your parents were alive and probably understand way more than you'll ever know that they understand about what it's like to be a kid. And that's why. That's actually the very reason why they give you those rules. And so it's, it's kind of like Paul's saying. He's saying, well, hold on. You want to see how much reason... For confidence in the flesh I have, sit down and let me tell you. And he gives the following list. And I think dividing this list into two parts helps us as we're looking at this. And this is really the heart of um, Paul's argument here on his confidence in the flesh. He, He gives a list about who he is and what he does. A list about who he is and what he does. So first of all, who is he? Circumcised. So Paul, he's, he's saying, all right, here's this whole argument I'm making about the Judaizers. Here's all the contrasts I just made about the Judaizers. Well, let, let me first of all say, I have confidence in the flesh. I have reason for confidence in the flesh. First reason, 
I'm circumcised. That's the issue he's discussing. Paul bears the sign from Genesis 17, 9 and 10. That he has the sign of the covenant of Abraham. Circumcised. Well, he keeps going. Circumcised on the eighth day. What is he saying with the eighth day? Well, that's what was supposed to happen. The Jewish people, if you go back to Genesis 17, 9 and 10, what was supposed to happen when a son was born on the eighth day, you were to take him to the temple and he was to be circumcised. What's Paul saying? Paul's saying, I was circumcised on the eighth day. So not only do I bear the sign, but I was born into, by birth, I was a Jewish person. Of the people of Israel. See, it wasn't just new babies. If somebody wanted to become part of the people of Israel, if somebody was a sojourner, if somebody was uh, a servant that wanted to become the people of Israel, somebody who was converted to Judaism, this would be a real barrier for me uh, if I wanted to become a Jew. But if you wanted to, you would, you would have to go and get circumcised. So there were adults. There were older kids who would go and who would get circumcised. And what Paul is saying is, I was, I'm circumcised on the eighth day of the people of Israel. He's saying, I, I am part of Israel from birth. I didn't join late. I didn't come in afterwards. I was born into this people. I am Jewish from birth. He was born Jewish of the tribe of Benjamin. He keeps going. Not only was he the, the people of Israel by birth, but he was of the tribe of Benjamin. Benjamin was the youngest of Jacob's son. And if you remember the story when Joseph gets sold into slavery into Egypt, right? Jacob thinks Joseph is dead. And so Benjamin, his youngest son, now becomes kind of his favorite son because there are only two sons whom Rachel had. And so Benjamin becomes uh, Jacob's favorite son. And after the Babylonian exile, the remnant of God's people were made up of people from the tribe of Benjamin. So here Paul is saying, I'm born Jewish, right? So you want to talk about confidence in the flesh. Before we even get to my accomplishments and things I've done, I was born as Jewish as you can get. And not only was I born Jewish, I was born into the faithful remnant of the people of God. So I've been faithful to God from birth is what, God, or what uh, Paul is saying. And that's why he says a Hebrew of Hebrews. He's ending it with saying, not only in my birth, but even down to the language that my people use, I am a Hebrew of Hebrew. In every sense, it's a list of everything beyond his control. And he says, every single one of those things that were beyond my control line up perfectly with what it means to be God's people. So now, that's who he is. He's perfectly Jewish Completely out of his control, but completely Jewish. Now he transfer, or transitions over to what he did. So what does he say? He says, okay, so I'm a Hebrew of Hebrews. As to the law, a Pharisee. Now we're familiar with Pharisees, right? We, we hear Pharisees in the New Testament. They're not usually in a positive light, right? We, we hear Jesus talking about the Pharisees. So we don't understand the Hebrew context and the Hebrew culture. But Pharisee were a group of people that were looked up to. It was a small group of Jewish people. It was in many ways a back to the Bible movement. The Pharisees uh, had in many ways very strong theology. And here's what one of the commentators say. In addition to the New Testament, 
Our chief information about the Pharisees comes from Josephus. He emphasizes their careful attention to the law and its interpretation. They held to a firm belief in God's sovereignty, while at the same time affirming human responsibility. After death, human beings face judgment before God. Those who were wicked receive eternal punishment, while the righteous will be resurrected. So this was a Pharisee idea, resurrection. Josephus further notes that despite their small number, their views on worship, prayer, and sacrifices were influential among the broader public. The number of Pharisees during the time of Jesus and Paul is hard to estimate, but Josephus claims they numbered about 6,000 men in the days of Herod the Great. The composite picture, we're still reading this quote here, the composite picture that emerges from the various sources is clear enough. Even if there is dispute about some of the details, they devoted themselves to the careful study and practice of the law, by which they meant not only the written Mosaic law, but also their own traditions that had been passed down through generations. Their focus on the Torah and observance was a commitment to purity in everyday matters of life, down to the very details. So here's here Paul saying, okay, not only was I Jewish from birth, but I was in this elite echelon of God's people who took the Torah seriously, who applied God's laws and sought to live uh, in a way to please the Lord so that we would be resurrected. So including oral traditions, food laws, Sabbath observation, circumcision, Paul saying, you guys think you're the first to invent this back to Jewish practice thing? I was in the original group. I was in the first group trying to do this. Well, what else does he say? So as to zeal, a persecutor of the church. Now that word zeal uh, is synonymous with passion. And now we think about passion today. We think about energy. We think about being excited about something. Uh, But zeal had to have an action associated with it. I think in a similar way, if you really think about it, you wouldn't say somebody's passionate about something unless you can see that passion, right? In something they're doing. You could, maybe it's talking, and you say, man, that guy's passionate about that because he's talking passionate, but you can't, you have to see it. It has to have an action, right? Well, zeal is similar. Zeal has an action. And so what Paul is saying is he's saying, I, I have this passion. Well, what in the Bible, where, where do we see zeal? Zeal is always associated in the Bible with God's glory. Isaiah 9, 7, Psalm 119, 139, John 2, 17 are all examples in the Bible where we see zeal for God's glory, right? We just read about it in the Christmas message. Here this son is going to be born, this wonderful counselor. And what does it say at the end there? For the zeal of the Lord will accomplish this. Why? Why is, how's the zeal of the Lord going to accomplish Jesus? Well, because God's so passionate about his glory that he's going to send Jesus, who's going to bring people to him and people from every tribe, tongue, nation, who are going to worship him, who are going to be in relationship with him. And so what Paul is saying is he's saying, I was so convinced that the biggest enemy to God's glory were Christians that I persecuted the church. I think it's really interesting. I think it's, to me, it's a strong evidence of the claims of Christianity because Paul doesn't say the biggest, biggest group that I needed to go and take care of that was robbing God of glory were those filthy Gentiles. 
He doesn't say it, were those, it was those Jews who weren't practicing fully the Torah. But he says it was those Christians. And Paul goes out of his way to have them thrown in jail and oversee many of them being put to death. And all he would have had that same view. Paul is one of the few who actually took action for the zeal of God's glory to persecute the church. And he believed, again, this message was such a threat to God's glory, particularly because it was faith in Jesus that made one right before God. That message that the Christians were saying, Paul says, I believed at that time was such a problem that they had to be persecuted. And third, he says, as to righteousness under the law, blameless. And Paul is hammering it home with this last point. He's saying he was blameless. He was above reproach. If anyone bought a charge that Paul didn't keep any part of the law, Paul says they would have been wrong. Because in all aspects that one should expect to keep the law, he did. Paul is saying, don't think I'm against the law because I couldn't keep it. I kept it. I kept it better than anyone's ever kept it, is what he's he's saying in essence. Uh, I kept it as good as anybody could keep it. I don't think he's saying that's what made him right before God. See, I think we get uncomfortable. We we read that word blameless, and we think Paul's saying, hey, as to righteousness under the law, I had achieved right, right standing before God. I don't think that's what he's saying. But he's saying, in every aspect that you're supposed to keep the law, I kept it. I think, like diets. So in 2021, it's coming up, many of you are looking forward to, I guess you could say, 2021, because there's more of you this year than there's ever been. And you're looking forward to getting rid of some of you in 2021. And there's, I mean, I don't know, this is off the top of my head, but I think there has never been a time in human history that there's been more diet plans available to you than there is today. I mean, you have uh, paleo, you have keto, you have, I mean, still Adkins, I guess, it's just kind of just rebranded into keto and uh, into uh, paleo, I guess. But you have, you can find on this end of the spectrum, you can find diets where they say eat nothing but meat and fat. And you can go all the way over to this end where they say nothing but vegetables because meat is bad, right? And so it's like Paul saying, let's, let's pick on keto for a second. It'd be like Paul saying, don't do the keto diet. It's dumb. Right? What kind of argument is that? Oh, okay. Thanks, Paul. Now, what Paul is saying is, no, 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 not don't do the keto diet because it's dumb. He's saying, actually, I've kept the keto diet perfectly from youth, not eating one more gram of sugar than I was supposed to, only eating exactly what was prescribed down to the artificial sweetener in my gum. And those who've looked at keto, yeah, it actually, you have to worry about your gum. Uh, what Paul is saying, he's saying, okay, I'm making this argument against confidence in the flesh, not because I haven't tried it. But because I've, more than anybody else, he'd say, I I kept this. I kept this law. From birth, I kept this law. He was perfectly Jewish by birth and blamelessly Jewish in action. 
And so what's his conclusion? What's his argument? That takes us to the conjunction. But. One of my favorite words in the Bible. Here's what he's saying. Paul uses this conjunction. He says, I have had all of these reasons for confidence in the flesh, but whatever gain I had, I counted as loss for the sake of Christ. Paul's using accounting language. He's saying, he's saying, I, I, I used to think that all of these things that got me closer to access with God, all of these things that made me right before God, all these things that I would have put in the gain column, I now recognize are actually in the loss column. All of these things I counted as gain, all these things I would have put in black in my ledger book before God, I now have to put in the loss column. I'm now aware that they belong in the loss column. And I only have one thing to put in the gain column. Only one thing that I can write in black letters. And that is Jesus. I only have one gain, he says, and it's Christ. And look what he says. He says, but don't, don't pity me. It's not a bad thing. I don't, I don't look and say my, my life was wasted. Oh, how sad I am. He says, no, don't pity me. Because I've found that knowing Christ Jesus, my Lord, is surpassing worth. And take a second. This, this is such a big phrase. Knowing. His emphasis on relationship. Not knowing about. But knowing as a person knows another. It's not knowledge about God. It's knowing God. Now, that being said, it's a quick commercial for Logos. Uh, I do think reading the Bible and understanding the Bible is important. And there's a great software out there that you could talk to Chauncey Almond about called Logos. And you, you have packages uh, all, all over the spectrum. I used it a lot in my study, and it was so helpful. Uh, and they have a special right now. Um, by the end of the year, there's a discount. So... Chauncey, give me my gift afterwards. I'm just kidding. No, but knowing God, knowing him through his word, knowing, having a relationship with him. But look what he says. He says, knowing Christ, Christ, the promised Messiah, the promised one from old, Jesus, Jesus, we just got done celebrating this at Christmas. He shall be called Jesus for he will save their people from their sins. The, the word Jesus means Yahweh saves. Christ, Jesus the one who will save people from separation from the love of God, who will save them from their sins, Christ Jesus, my. So he says, Christ Jesus, not the Lord, Christ Jesus, my Lord, a personal relationship with Christ. But don't stop there. So many of us do. So many of us would call him knowing Christ Jesus or knowing my Christ Jesus, right? We're okay calling Jesus Personal. We're okay having a personal relationship with Jesus. But, Christ, or, but Paul says, knowing Christ Jesus, my Lord. It's a beautiful truth of the incarnation. This word is the translated word for the name of God. It's so important. It's not Christ Jesus. It's Christ Jesus, my Lord. He is Lord, and he's to be the Lord of our lives. 
He's to have dominion and rulership over our lives, over all of the universe he created. And Paul says, knowing him, knowing Christ Jesus, my Lord, is surpassing gain. It's a relationship with God through Jesus the Son, through the fellowship of the Spirit. Christ is our treasure. Christ is gain. So how about you? Have you put your faith in Christ Jesus the Lord? Is he your Lord today? Or are you counting on your own good deeds, whatever you've defined them to be? For some, maybe it's avoiding the big sins, right? Murder, murder, and murder, I think nowadays, right? It's really just murder. For some, it's the hope that God knows deep down you're really trying to do your best, right? You're just hoping that, man, when I get there, he's going to know, you know what? You didn't do a great job, but you, you did your best. Or maybe you're thinking you're not intentionally trying to harm others. Maybe you're just trying to live a good life. For others still, it's, it's actually a belief in another set of morals or another religion. But I would beg you to see, and I'm praying that the Spirit opens your eyes to see that like Paul, like he saw, there's only one way. Only one way into right relationship before God. There's only one way to be right before God. There's only one way into the goodness and love of God, and that is through the perfect righteousness of his son Jesus for you. That's the only way to be right before God. It's through putting your faith in that that, in what Jesus has done for you, is what makes you right before God. Pursuing him, relationship with him. And I pray that you believe that today. And there are others of us whom this message so far has been a little too close to home. So you would consider yourself a Christian today. In fact, you're like Paul used to be. You're counting on some key things to make you more acceptable to God than others. Some of us in this room have a similar resume to Paul, like he was as a Pharisee. If you read yours today, it might sound like this. I was raised in a Christian home. I don't remember a time when I didn't believe. I was baptized in pure water from the River Jordan at the age of seven. I've read and memorized all of Martin Luther, all of John Calvin, all of Jonathan Edwards. I've listened to and read all of John Piper. I've read all Charles Spurgeon. I've memorized all the fighter verses. I have tattoos of the five solas of the Reformation. As to the faith, a Calvinist. As to soteriology, I believe in election. A Christian among Christians. And I believe the word for you today would be the same as what Paul is saying. While those are good things, while memorizing God's word is, 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 is a great thing, those things don't go in the gain column in your right standing before God. We say that again. Those things, while they are good things, don't go into the gain column before God, in your right standing before God. What is gain and what is ultimate gain is Jesus and knowing Christ Jesus, our Lord. Oh, that we would know Christ Jesus, our Lord. Now, see, this could be the end. And you're probably hoping it is. It's been 
a little over 30 minutes, and we're hoping that this is the end. And, and I think you could. I think we could close it. We could say enough has been said that those who are not Christians should be able to hear the gospel and believe. And those who are trusting in their good works would, would hear that message and would say, no, I'm not trusting in my good works. I'm going to trust in Jesus. But Paul doesn't end here, and I'm not going to either. Um, don't worry. We're, we are wrapping up. This is the last point. This is confirmation. But we have to remember the context. You have to remember, what's Paul writing this letter to the Philippian church for? Is he writing it because he wants to inform them of all things about Christendom? No, he's, he's writing to the church. Well, remember, he's writing to the church to encourage them. And he's calling them throughout the book to have joy, to rejoice. Well, what, how, Paul, how can we rejoice when you're in prison? How can we rejoice when... When we know all the loss that you've experienced and when we're experiencing loss ourselves, how can we have joy? We have to remember this is the whole point of the book of Philippians. And look what he says. For his sake, for Jesus' sake, I have suffered the loss of all things. So see, Paul's not saying he intentionally has lost all things. He's talking about a different category now. So before he was talking about the gain in front of God, and he's saying all of these things I thought were gain were actually loss. And now he's saying, let me tell you physically what's happened to me. I, I literally, right, literally have lost all things. I'm in prison. I've lost my freedom. Ultimately, Paul knows, maybe knows at this point, I think he does, because in Philippians 1.21 he says to die is gain. I think Paul knows he's going to die. So Paul knows, for Jesus' sake and for the sake of the gospel, I've suffered the loss of all things. And what does he say? Does he say, and it really bothers me at night. But I have this little verse that I read. He says, I've suffered the loss of all things and consider them rubbish. Now he's not talking about their quality. He's talking about like Christmas morning. When you open that present and your kids open the present, they're... It's a weird person, excuse me if you're this weird person, it's a weird person who gathers up the wrapping paper and says, oh, but it's such nice wrapping paper. Why did you have to rip it? Right, you rip the wrapping paper off because you want the gift. And that's what Paul says. He says, I consider those things like wrapping paper. I consider those things as rubbish, not because they're bad. Wrapping paper is great, especially the really thick, shiny kind, right? It's great. He says it was, it was nice. It is very good. But you know what? The prize is not the wrapping paper. The gift is Jesus. And what does he say? He considers them rubbish that he may gain Christ and be found in him, not having a righteousness of my own that comes from the law, but that which comes from faith in Christ, the righteousness from God that depends on faith, that I may know him and the power of his resurrection and may share in his sufferings, becoming like him in his death. Conformity to Christ is what Paul wants. Conformity to Christ, he doesn't just want, so many of us do, right? We want the get out of heaven, uh, or get out of heaven, get out of jail, get out of hell, there we go, get into heaven, ticket. He doesn't want that. He wants conformity with Christ because he understands to gain resurrection with Christ, which is what he wanted. What he wanted as a Pharisee was resurrection to be with God. To get that resurrection as a Christian, you need to be unified with Christ through his death and then his resurrection. It's what we say when we baptize people here. Right? Buried with Christ. 
and raised again with him to walk into new life. Through faith, we're conformed to Christ, we're unified with Christ so that we will be raised with Christ. So the whole point, and why I didn't close earlier, is this. Paul says, you want to have joy in suffering? You want to be able to endure difficult times? It's not any different than how you get right before God. As Christians, we, we get tired of hearing the gospel, don't we? Because it's like, well, I, I already know the gospel. I've already believed that. Give me something new. And Paul says, you don't get anything new. The gospel is all you need. The gospel is how you get right before God. And the gospel is how you have joy in suffering. What if 2021 isn't any better? What if it's worse? How can we endure news of furlough with joy? How can we endure terminal diagnoses? How can we endure with joy? I think the answer is here. Paul would say it's knowing Christ Jesus, our Lord, knowing the surpassing worth of knowing Christ Jesus, knowing you're right before God, not because of your good works, but because of what Jesus has done for you on the cross. That's what makes us right before God. That's what gives us joy as we endure difficult times in our life. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for your word. Father, we thank you for the truth of the gospel today. That you and knowing you is surpassing worth. Your righteousness, Jesus, over us is what makes us right before God. And what gives us confidence and gives us joy as we endure difficult trials in life. I pray as we continue our worship this morning and end with song. God, we would sing like never before that we would weep with joy for the truth of the gospel, that the God of the universe sent his son for us, that we would know Christ Jesus, our Lord. We would have personal relationship with you and we would be right before you because of Jesus and because of his righteousness. I pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Thank you for listening to this sermon from Grace Church. To receive future messages, subscribe to the podcast on iTunes or listen online by visiting our website at gracechurchfrisco.org.